Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you along. I understand that you've uh, just returned from a wonderful trip over, was it, to uh, Amsterdam? Correct. Yeah, and it's lovely to be here with you, Richard. <laughs> We've known each other, I can't even think how long, but uh, I know at least back uh, in sort of around 2012, um, so uh, it's been a, a long uh uh, almost a friendship, I'd say, because we've hung out a bit and done lots of interesting things together. So it's uh, it's amazing that it's taken me this long to get you on the podcast, but it's uh, fantastic to have you here and uh, really looking forward to uh, what we have to discuss. So perhaps just to start off, David, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're currently doing professionally. Yeah, well, I'm the co-founder, CEO and chair of a company called Ceres Tag. Cirrus Tag is most known for being the world's first direct-to-satellite livestock monitoring platform. Since then, uh, since we launched in 2021, after nearly five years in R&D and efficacy testing, uh, we're now operating in 36 countries uh, and we've expanded species of animals. So we're also monitoring uh, megafauna mm -hmm. uh, for wildlife, mm -hmm. uh, things like giraffe, rhinos, elephants, um, zebras, buffalo, etc., as well as camels and deer and those invasive species as well. Uh, and we're on the precipice to launch into companion animals and equine as well. So really, we're all about animal monitoring. Right. And uh, you were saying five years uh, getting all your ducks in a row. And then did you say launching in 2021? Correct. So right. we launched launched at a event called Beef in Rockhampton. It only happens every three years, and it aligned mm -hmm. with our launch. And it's about to happen again next year. Uh, so we're looking forward to going back and saying, "Hey, we're still around and we're still growing," and and it's pretty exciting stuff. Fantastic. And I mean, that's amazing to think. Really, you haven't even been in the actual market for two years uh, to have reached such a a huge. Uh, uh, global platform so quickly. You mentioned that you were the first into this space. So have there been competitors following you into the market yet or uh, are they still watching to see what's going on? Look, there will be more competitors that will come into the market over time, but it, we were the world's first. And in fact, when we started on the journey in 2016, everyone thought we were just a little bit crazy, which is... Um, not unusual for entrepreneurs to sort of go out there and do something a bit different, but that's why we, that's why they exist, right? And um, it's not for everyone because the 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 risks are very very high. Uh, there's a lot of money that's involved. There's a big regulatory hurdles to get over, and there's a market to create. So there are many different challenges if you walk the path that we've walked on mm -hmm. and even though we've created a market now and and growing quite rapidly anyone to start from scratch even now and said that's a great idea i'm going to do that it will take them at least five to seven years not just because of the technology but because of the efficacy testing 
the mm -hmm. animal welfare component and also the regulatory approvals, particularly to be operating in the satellite space. Right. And in terms of the way your product's been taken to market uh, and in, uh, in so many countries now and in so many different sort of areas of animals, uh, as you've said earlier, you know, what, what kind of team have you had to build or how, what's been your sort of distribution strategy? Yeah, that's uh, well, that's changed considerably along the journey. And so there was in the early days, there was only two of us. So mm -hmm. my wife and I are the co-founders. Uh, and we, it was just the two of us for two years, and we partnered with CSIRO. And, you know, we're fortunate enough we had the skill set between the two of us to be able to take this to market. We partnered with uh, CSIRO, who helped us with the development and also the efficacy testing. So that was really uh, one of the keys to it. Uh, Meat and Livestock Australia were also there at the beginning. And, yeah, so we we self-funded for a good while uh, we did have some support from grants and then uh, we also had some early shareholders that believed in this as well so they started coming on board around 2018 mm -hmm. and then um, then you know we as each milestone was achieved we we managed we could raise a bit more money a bit more money etc um, you said about distribution. Well, look, last year we went out to raise a big amount of money because we wanted to miniaturize, go to market directly through e-commerce. And to be honest, the market tanked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone is aware of it. The high inflation, interest rates went up. Um, basically, all of the venture capital dried up. And so we were um, basically we managed to get a, a little bit of funds from some high net worth wealth people uh, who were on the journey, and we pivoted our the way we were going to market from going direct to now also including distributors. And uh, distributors really have been a game changer for us. Well, we've got them through Australia, Africa, Japan, Switzerland. We just signed Cars Billington in the UK and Ireland. And we're working towards them in mainland Europe and, and the US as well. So, yeah, it's, so, it's a nice growth pattern. Fantastic. And so in terms of the actual Cirrus team, obviously you and your wife as the founders, but how big is the, the employee team now? Yeah, well, the team's around about a dozen people and uh -huh. it's made up of a variety of different skills from project management, data, quality systems, financials, uh, marketing, um, engineering. So there's quite a variety of different skill sets that are in the team. And, um, you know, that's one of, been one of the exciting things, starting things from zero mm -hmm. to now actually having a team where you actually got to have policies in place and you got to have quality systems and so yeah so it's, it's, in, in inclusion <laughs> and diversity uh policies and all of that good stuff all of that all of that and <laughs> and we take it pretty serious too because we've got we've got um right from day one we we went early and got iso 9001 uh mm -hmm. quality systems and iso 27001 so we've used that as the platform to build the business and when you got those sort of uh, standards in place, it's it's easy to just keep building on them because you don't know any different. But 
for those companies that go later and get their ISO 9001, you know, I hear it all the time. Oh, it's an absolute headache. We've got to undo everything and redo mm. it again and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas we've just, we don't know any different. So it's been a good process. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, come back and talk more about that a little later in the conversation. But David, uh, I'm interested in learning, you know, what led to uh, this point, because certainly when you and I knew each other back in the day, uh, you know, your career was, uh, you know, in a somewhat different space. But, you know, so let's start where it all began. So did you, were you actually born on the land? Did you grow up in a sort of a farming family? I did. Um, so my early years was spent on a, just a, a smaller farm in the Hunter Valley mm-hmm. and, um, from there went, you know, finished school, went to university, did engineering, uh, did materials engineering, which was a little bit different to the traditional, uh, back, you know, back in the dinosaur days when I did it. So um, what did that so, mean at the time? Materials engineering, what would it compare to now? Um, well, it's still materials. In fact, it's more relevant today than it was back then. But people would do metallurgy would okay. be the primary. and But it's where we started looking at engineering with ceramics and with uh, with polymers as well, particularly polymers that come a long way and composites. Uh, these days you see it in, you know, the Dreamliner 787 and stuff like that. That'd be all... Uh, materials engineers that would have been involved in the whole development of that. And what attracted you to that career? Uh, I'm always one that wanted to, when things broke, like uh, failed in use, whether it was in mining, power stations, shipping, whatever the case may be, I was always keen to understand why it broke and then re-engineer it. And that's essentially what I did is I was in a a profession called failure investigation, which was great because I got to see so many other types of industries that um, normally in your career, you don't get to see such a broad range uh, so early. So then I sort of um, fell into a little bit of a sales role, I guess, which led to an early management role. So at 26, I was sort of, already had a team of, of a dozen people uh, doing this, which which is a bit um, daunting at first because I made a lot of stuff-ups, not mm-hmm. understanding the HR side of things. And some people would say, I may even still do it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I but, think... Uh, <laughs> By 26, I was leading a team of about 100 people. And I tell you what I know, looking back now, I thought, oh, my God, I can't imagine some of the people working for me, particularly older people. They must have looked at me and thought, who is this idiot? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, look, and I, it led me to, to Queensland. And um, I was up in central Queensland working right across all the industries, heavy industries, up in that way. I uh, spent a bit of time at Ergon, uh, which didn't suit me much because it was a government entity and I just, does me, it's like oil and water. Um, so that didn't work. Um, and I moved on to construction. And then uh, finally, I was with GHD for a good while um, and ended up being an operations manager in the Middle East for them based in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years, came back and uh, started my own consultancy, uh, focusing on infrastructure and energy and did that for about six years before sort of 
the light bulb went off on Sarasac. Mm. I'm trying to recall because I know that you and I, uh, uh, we had met prior to 2014. I, I think that, you know, uh, that was really when I think for me also, although I already had my own recruitment business, it really started to get very excited about entrepreneurship and about, you know, uh, challenging traditional paradigms and and doing, um, you know, some innovative things. Obviously, I've done that within my space, but you've done it obviously within the Sarah space. But um, at what point did you come to an awakening or even an awareness that Sarah's was the right vehicle for you? Oh, there was a there were a couple of points that sort of led to this. First of all, I'd always been in a corporate ecosystem, mm-hmm. but whether it's a consultant or whether it's uh, sort of being um, as an employee. Then, uh, 2014, I guess I was towards the middle part of my 40s, and I'd sort of thought, well, if I don't give something a crack myself to do have a go and I didn't you know I, d- I did the engineering and the MBA and I've got that many pieces of paper on the wall but I'd never really really truly tested myself to see if I had what it takes to to make a successful mm. business and given my background and you know all over the world I, I it was inevitable it's going to be a global business because I, I'm not one to to stay still I had a couple of other business, smaller businesses in uh, in recruitment, believe it or not, and um, and also in uh, advertising. Which, let's just say, I sold them on to my partners because it just it was well, for me. It was like oil and water again, you know. Just right. Sort of like uh, yeah. <laughs> As you're talking, I'm remembering now because I was thinking, what other cool entrepreneurial ideas as David had in the past. I remember, so basically uh, the advertising business was essentially renting the the, the windows of um, passenger cars to actually have display advertising, which was such a great idea Um, at the time. I I remember you were very excited about that idea, Uh, but it sounds like, you know, Ceres has really been the one, you know, to strap strap a rocket to. Yeah, well, I I had the opportunity to... um be the entrepreneur in residence at the Queensland Library. And people were coming into there and um, there was one particular person came in with a drone and said, oh, I could determine what the weeds were uh, on the ground. And therefore you could do spot sort of, you know, poisoning. Right. I went, oh, that sounds good because you're not just mass spraying and stuff like that. It sounds really good for the environment. I like this. So I asked him to come up to my in-laws farm which is up in the South Burnett area. And he deployed the drone. And when he, but before he did that, he he brought up the pad that he controlled the drone with. And with his finger, he just drew it like a square with his, and and he deployed the drone and it just flew within the, the, the satellite image of where that square was. Mm. I said, how, how did you do that? And he said, oh, that's just off the shelf software. That's mm. easy. Everyone's got that. And I went, really? Okay. So I won't be needing you anymore. And I had the, it looks like it was a light bulb moment. I went back and told my wife about it and she said, yeah, yeah, let's, uh, it, geez, if we could control uh, animals like virtual fencing, then that would be an absolute game changer for the livestock industry. So we set about uh, on a path 
for virtual fencing. And then we got a little bit into that and then realized that the market was changing and virtual fencing was becoming uh, illegal in a lot of countries and, and, and it is in a lot of states in Australia subsequently. But it's also illegal in Europe and UK and... And Just explain like. that a little bit more. Uh, <clears throat> you, uh, what what exactly do you mean by virtual fencing? So if an animal was to wear a collar or an ear tag and it gave them a uh, electric shock, right? If it, if it went near the boundary, so that it, so you don't actually need fencing, and you see mm-hmm. it, or you used to see it with uh, dog dog fences a lot. Yeah, you know, and barking and so on, all of that sort of stuff. So that's. Um, so from an animal welfare perspective, it's, you know, it's, it's people uh, have some questions about it, mm-hmm. but in places like the US and South America and Africa and, and the, it's not really an issue. In fact, it's seen as just good management practices to be able to control your animals. So while it still had a big market for it, what we did is we pivoted towards doing um, sustainable practices so traceability biosecurity genetics pasture feed intake so measuring the kilograms dry matter intake so we can measure methane emissions and and from that that those heritable traits for favorable outcomes uh, uh using that for genetic selection as well so that's really what we're focused at in the livestock space today. Right. And so at what point did you go to look at this partnership opportunity with CSIRO? Very early on, in fact, um, we I was up to see CSIRO. They had some software and it's a it's a bit of a funny story, but we'll go through it. I went up to see them about some software, came back and I was shaking my head and I said, that's terrible software. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be using that. And meanwhile, uh, uh, I've been to a Meat and Livestock Australia breakfast, and I'd met someone there at, from Meat and Livestock Australia, and they and I was, I was just saying what I'd like to do, get into the industry. I just had a passion for this industry, and um, he later that that gentleman later sent me a paper, and he said, "Oh, you, based on what you told me, I think you might be interested in reading this paper." And I read it, and it was the same names from the CSIRO at the top of the paper. So I rang them and said. I'm reading a paper here that says you've had a smart tag and you it's been deployed and you picked got it back and and what where why didn't you tell me about this and they said well you didn't ask mm. I went oh you're kidding okay so tell me um are you still doing this and they said no why aren't you doing it oh we ran out of money hang on so if I could get some funding for this, you'd happy to continue the research and development on this. And they went, absolutely. It's a, we see this as an important part of um, the livestock industry for the future. And this was back in 2016, right? So, mm-hmm. and it still took that long. And and one of the differentiators from what they had done to what we now have is that they. They'd put the tag on, the animal would go out, it'd do whatever it did, and they'd have to bring the animals back. They'd take the tag off, they'd download the data. Ours, you put the tag on, 
animals go out and it's reporting via satellite the whole time in real time. So we know if there's any major issues where the animals are using the land, if there's a biosecurity. So if we've got foot and mouth disease in Australia, for instance, we'd know pretty much straight away where those animals are and be able to, professionals will be able to use that information to make decisions in a timely manner. Mm. Um, but today we, unfortunately, they're not, they're not deployed to that extent yet, but certainly, you know, they, they will be in the future. Right. And so uh, just talk us through you from that point, then perhaps some of the key milestones between then and now. So it's certainly getting the one of the decisions we had to make was that we don't have our own user software. So that really surprises people. You're creating all this data. And then what? The customer can't visualize it on one of your software and we go, no. But what we did is we analyzed the market and found that there was a, a bunch of other software. In fact, there's hundreds of them that take this data and uses it in different ways, some for property management, some for finance, some for sustainability, and the carbon market is also building up right at the moment too. So they can use it for all of their claims for you know, carbon credits, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we didn't do was actually build our own software. And instead we API, so we basically send the data to these other software so that they can use that data. And I, they they actually use the same data, no matter what platform it is, and then they communicate there to their customers. So we're just improving everything that they do. They're taking data from all sorts of other sources as well, and they're just combining it with ours, and, and they create great decision-making tools. Right, and so the end user then has a choice as to what, software they want to use to uh, analyze the data best for their needs. Correct. And so that was a conscious choice um, versus in-house development on your part. Nearly everyone else that does animal monitoring, in fact, I don't know of anyone else like us, they do the hardware and the software. Right. So from an adoption point of view, being with satellite, we can, we can basically drop ship straight to the people we don't have to mm -hmm. set up any infrastructure um, so that's good and the people can choose the the software that suits them so I mean we've got software in Afrikaans and in Japanese and Portuguese and Spanish and you know so really for us we've got no limitation to our scalability not just for the purpose of the data but also languages and any of the other we just removed all of those barriers to, right. to growth and, and when you say we can drop ship, you're, you mean deliver the actual tags? Believe it or not, we never see the tags. Okay. We we manufacture in Taiwan. Yeah. And when someone buys the product from, from our e-commerce platform, they go directly to whoever the customer is or our mm -hmm. distributor. They order them. We take the order. We notify the manufacturer. They ship the product to the distributor wherever they are. Yeah, we never actually see the product, right? Uh, and then uh, because of the conversations we've had previously, and and sort of understanding more now today, so um, e-commerce is a big part of your uh, strategy, and so where you have distributors 
uh, versus people who are able to order directly from whatever platform, uh, you know, they can buy your product. How or why did you come to the decision that a distribution network was going to add value to that? Yeah, that's a great question because we were pretty adamant to do this all e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we went to market e-commerce because there was there was no market for our for what we did. We had to create it. And um, but we had, you know, we were pretty determined. We did promotional sort of things, whatever, to to educate the market. But no distributor would take it on anyway, because it's like, well, will it sell? You mm. know, that's one of the first questions I'll say. So now we've got, uh, you know, we've got tens of thousands of these things out there now. So distributors don't have uh, a lot of questions and, you know, the margins are good for them and we're happy for them to have, because they've all got the local local relationships with various people. You see, we can't be everywhere. We're, we're still a relatively small team, you know, mm. so we can't be everywhere. Um, so the distributors have the relationships with the people and and where we encourage that. In fact, we promote all our distributors. Great. We've always had the attitude that don't try and be everything to everyone. Think globally, act locally. Mm. Partner partner with people as much as possible and and let the people that, that are good at what they do do what they do. Now, one of the things that we're not very good at you know, is logistics. So it's not, it's not, it's not our front and center. We're very sure. good at developing. We're very good at managing data. We're very good at all of the, all of those sort of things and understanding the market. But actual logistics and and sales and stuff, it's not, it's not our, it's not our number one uh, skill set. Right. And so moving into new markets, you mentioned megafauna. I've not heard that expression before, but it, it, it tells you exactly what it is. It has <laughs> Was that something led by a distributor uh, who said, oh, look, by the way, you know, we distribute to these game parks and have you thought about that? Or is that something that you'd, you'd thought about yourselves? Well, we had thought about it, but we'd not, not actioned anything. And I, I tell you, it was an amazing day when we received this email from the Giraffe Conservation Foundation in Namibia. Mm. And it had one of our tags in the giraffes here. And everyone, the whole team was just stunned looking at this screen. And we said, well, I guess we're in wildlife now. Right. And that was sort of the beginning of it. And um, look, there's an Australian guy by the name of Julian Fennessy who lives in Namibia. His life is in Namibia. He's the founder of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. He discovered us and has been an amazing support, you know, and we haven't gotten everything right uh, straight away. And because he was on so early, you know, there was, you don't always get everything 100% right. But now, you know, we're, we're very, very good at what we do. And he's been an amazing supporter along that whole journey. But he's, you know, he's told other people about us and, so we've changed the game in wildlife from wearing like two kilogram collars that cost $3,000 each to now, you know, a, a, an ear tag that weighs 30 grams, costs a couple of hundred bucks, and you can just put it in the air and away it goes. And it's, uh, you know, so the the major cost for that conservation monitoring used to be these big, awful collars. 
Right. And so they were very expensive. So, you know, they bought, you know, 50 of them and that's $150,000. Sure. Now, now you buy 50 of ours and it's like, you know, a couple of grand. You know, the major costs have now shifted to helicopters, people, all of those sort of things. I imagine uh, putting a uh, tag in a giraffe's ear would be, uh, you know, a little bit more challenging. Either they'd have to have a very long ladder or wait for it to lie down. <laughs> yes. And so you, you've obviously, you've just come back from this conference and we were talking earlier, you've been out there, you know, uh, uh, speaking all around the world, um, you know, particularly over the last year or so, building brand awareness and so on. So if we look to, you know, looking out now for, say, um, the business has been trading or for two years. Um, what's the, the future look like? If we were having this conversation in two or three years' time, where would you expect or hope things will be then? You know, we had our AGM yesterday uh, to shareholders, and we have, you know, we've got over 50 shareholders these days. We're a public unlisted uh, company. And excitingly, you know, we've got shareholders from all over the world who are, have come on board and supported us. And when I was giving um, the summary of the business to the shareholders yesterday, I was very proud to stand at, at the podium and say, well, today we're standing here as the world's fastest growing animal monitoring platform. And, you know, we talked about sustainability. Sustainability is, is a major driver for us. And there are new laws and regulations that are coming in or have come in, really, like the EU deforest-free supply chain laws. So that means that any product coming or going to Europe needs to have proof that it didn't come out of deforested areas. So you can imagine in, in Brazil what that means for them. But also even here, anywhere that supplies Europe needs to have this uh, evidence base, particularly around... There are seven main commodities. Beef and slash leather is absolutely one of those. And it's one of the only ones that moves. The rest of them stay still, like coffee and soy and rubber, etc. So there are those sustainability laws. There's the EU sustainability reporting uh, regulations that need to have that automated reporting. There's the carbon market. The carbon market's blowing up at the moment there's there's new rules coming out of ways to be able to calculate that and a lot of our data can be used for doing all of those things in addition to that you know we're, we're in it we're going even here in australia we're going headlong into a drought you know this is the fastest dry that we've ever experienced right now and you know that's really concerning for a lot of people and they're destocking. Um, the US went through this a couple of years ago, um, but we're doing it again now. They're destocking. And the thing is, people need to understand, don't just get rid of everything. I mean, you want to keep your genetics and your your prime breeders and stuff. You want to keep your favorable, heritable traits. So you want the most feed-efficient animals. Because if you're breeding with those, you can actually optimize the amount of grass that you're going to use and become more profitable as well. So when this, when it does turn and you've still got those great heritable traits that you've kept, you know, just a few of or whatever the case may be because you've had to destock, then you're in a very good position to rebuild mm. your herd again. And it's those sort of that sort of information that we can provide through the use of our platform that makes a difference to people. 
The other thing that we're seeing is a demographic change. So between 2020 and 2030, you know, both in the US and in Australia, we're going to see a 40% drop in the number of people over 65 that are still in the industry. Mm. What that means is we're going to have younger younger producers, they're digital native, they're better educated, they truly want to make the world a better place. They they really put a lot of science into everything that they do and they need data to do it. You know, stop mucking around with, oh, you know, having a stick holding a gate open and stuff like that. No, th- these are... These are professionals. They're educated at university and other college, ag colleges and stuff that really, and, and they're, they're there now, but they're going to be moving into positions of, like, with the checkbook, if mm. you know what I mean. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's certainly um, fascinating to think about how so many industries are not only going to be impacted by AI, but yes. also impacted by this huge demographic change that we're going to see. And so I really, it, that really resonates with me, what you've just said. What about in terms of now you're in the stage where obviously you're going to need to grow the business more and that means employing more people or, um, you know, you, you came from a very a sort of a um, corporate uh, environment. You then had your own consulting business. You've been an entrepreneur running on the smell of an oily rag, you know, chased down, down a few different ideas, starting this business with your wife. It, you know, you add all that into a pot and stir it all up. And so how does that translate into, you know, what you look for in terms of building out the culture of Sarah's? Yeah, the culture is a big part, Richard. And you know, things things continue to evolve, you know, and I really like where we're going with workforces, with, you know, the, you know, the equality right across, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very good and long overdue uh, thing. So uh, those things are important for our business. And I think if you came to our office, you'd, you'd feel that. Um, we're careful in our growth. And we part, like I said, we partner a lot uh, with various different people. So we don't actually need to have a super huge workforce. I don't mm-hmm. see us ever really with thousands of people employed. But even as a small business owner, you know, myself, uh, who currently have a team of about seven, and I've been from a team of three to 14 and back and up and down. And so, I mean, trying to maintain a culture at seven is completely different to trying to maintain a culture at 14, let alone sure. trying to maintain a culture at a thousand, right? So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And uh, so, um, the kind of culture that you're trying to develop, granted, small business, yeah. Yeah. how would you describe that? Well, this is the reason why I mentioned at the start about the quality systems mm-hmm. and I say 9001. So we build everything up through those systems. So the culture is ingrained into the business. doesn't really matter if we go to hundreds of people. It's still got to follow the same policies and procedures. And believe me, as the person who was there at the very beginning, the, the person who has the most trouble keeping to them is me. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, you're starting your business, you're just sort of on a wing and a prayer and a, and this is what needs to be done, so it's done sort of thing. But now everything needs to be recorded. Everything needs to follow a, a, the policy and stuff like that. We're already 
in that phase. But I, I tell you what, uh, everyone says, oh, where do I find that whatever it is, you know? And you just go straight to a platform called Confluence. And we use Confluence extensively. And everything, every bit of IP, everything, the, all the policies, procedures, they're all there, easy to find. Mm. And so really, it's it's not really a, a big an issue because we've structured it right from the from the start. And we get audited every single year. Every single year we get audited that in. And yeah, even with data, we get penetration testing done to make sure that all our systems are robust. Um, so, you know, our businesses you know, ripe for mass growth. Awesome. And uh, and you're really looking forward to that, I can see. You're obviously, you know, very excited about the future. So, David, uh, you know, I really appreciate talking to you today. Before we sort of wrap it up, we've really had a chat today about business and about Ceres and so on, but tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what do you enjoy to do when you're not at work? Other than growing the most magnificent moustache, and uh, obviously this is an audio podcast, but I was there right at the beginning of David's moustache, and it is, uh, it's gone from strength to strength. <laughs> well... Thank you. Um, so what do I like doing? It's I quite enjoy adventure motorcycling. Okay. It's uh, very much a, it's something I got into a little bit later in life and uh, fully enjoyed that. But really, when I'm home, I just I, I'm fortunate to live on a little bit of acreage and I sort of meander around growing fruit trees and, you know, tying things up and. Uh, like, I mean, trees, yeah. mistakes, <laughs> make sure they grow properly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's, I, I'm also like my photography and okay. I've got myself a, a nice Nikon for my 50th uh, birthday. And yeah, I like going out and it's one of those big lens things. I take pictures of, uh, believe it or not, a lot of cows and wildlife and, I'm sure and <laughs> birds. And, uh, and so where's your... Uh, sort of a bucket list adventure, motorcycling adventure, where would you love to go? Look, um, I've, unfortunately, I'm going to miss this one, but uh, just along the Great Dividing Range, I think it'd be an amazing uh, okay. trek to go along. Um, you know, I, when I was a little bit younger, and I'm talking about five years ago, you know, I would have loved to have done um, down through the mountainous areas of Argentina. Right. Uh, uh, is is apparently quite nice and stuff but i think uh i might have missed that opportunity so i probably focus more closer to home fair enough yeah I, I was a mad motorcycle rider when i was in my 20s but as a uh, a 55 year old i just you don't bounce nearly as easily and uh, the idea of falling off and uh potentially being out of commission with my business even for a few weeks i it's just um a risk that i just i'm not prepared to take anymore which sounds really sad and pathetic but uh that's what happens when you get older well you know they say that we're only as old as we'd like to think we are so maybe <laughs> i haven't got to where you are yet <laughs> maybe all right david well, look thanks again for your time it's been a great conversation i wish you all the very best and uh look forward to uh hearing the next installment of your incredible business growth thanks Richard. have a great afternoon we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. 
While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.